I can't create content quickly enough to be able to roll it out to all these new hires and new departments and new roles in the organization. So what I started doing was rather than try to create content, I would just find people in the organization who had expertise and try to make sure that their expertise was being shared broadly, whether through mentoring programs or job shadowing programs or presentations. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Ivy Singer. And he's got perhaps the most unusual marketing phrase I have ever heard of. And we're going to talk about it at length because... I'm going to talk about it at length, and that's compliance as a service. So I've already given away the punchline, but Avi, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks so much, Tom, for having me. I really appreciate the time. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, sure, absolutely. My background in learning and development and human resources, I was very fortunate to get my start working for uh, technology companies back in 2005 first company I worked for was a company called DoubleClick. They were one of the uh, dot-com high flyers. Oh, that's I what I've th- heard. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So, well, you still see them sometimes. I think when people are navigating through the internet, sometimes you'll still see some ads and you'll see the name DoubleClick there sometimes. Absolutely fantastic company. Uh, great leadership. I was fortunate to be there at just a, an amazing time of growth. We grew from 700 employees to 1,500 employees globally over a two-year period and had the opportunity to, to be part of that. Eventually, we were acquired by Google, which was uh, another really interesting transition and interesting adventure as they helped with the change management piece of moving over from DoubleClick, which was a 1,500-person company, to Google, which at the time was about 20,000 employees. So that was great. Moved on to some other opportunities. Briefly worked for uh, Blue Man Group, which was certainly an interesting experience for several months. And then moved on to a company called Undertone, as well as I've worked for Indeed as well. And all in similar roles learning and development, human resources, but very, very much focused on technology companies that are going through high growth periods. That was something that I was very, very passionate about. And I'm still very passionate about today, even though I'm somewhat in a little bit of a different field these days. It also seems to me you really explored the intersection of technology and human interactions. We're going to talk about that in your role as compliance, but wow, going back to DoubleClick, but really all of those companies were perhaps not unique, but may have been really market leaders when you were with them. So uh, what a great background, but could you tell us your current role? So just to go back to to those roles, one of the things that I discovered when when you're working for technology companies that are just going through high periods of growth is that so much of the learning happens in what I call peer-to-peer. I can't create content quickly enough to be able to roll it out to all these new hires and new departments and new roles in the organization. So what I started doing was rather than try to create content, I would just find people in the organization who had expertise and try to make sure that their expertise was being shared broadly, whether through mentoring programs or job shadowing programs or presentations. So I came up with this sort of notion of a social, internal social learning, internal peer-to-peer learning. And I remember having conversations with Facebook and LinkedIn early on in 2007, 2008. And I said, hey, your platforms are great, but I think there's a huge enterprise opportunity here if you could just let us leverage it for internal knowledge sharing and things like that. But they weren't interested. So in 2014, I started a learning management platform called Showed Me. And the idea of it came out of the work that I've been doing around peer-to-peer social learning within organizations. And actually, the name came from just my experience was you ask somebody, 
hey, how'd you learn how to do that? And instead of saying they took a course or they sat through a class or they went to some kind of presentation, they always say, well, somebody showed me. So how'd you learn how to do pivot tables in Excel? Somebody showed me. How'd you learn about online advertising? Somebody showed me. How'd you learn how to do sales? Somebody showed me. So the idea was to create this platform. And what we did was we created a platform that was designed to help organizations implement social and peer-to-peer learning within the organizations. We launched in 2015, as we started in 2014, launched in 2015. We had some nice traction, but the challenge with that platform was that it took so much training for organizations to just learn the concepts of peer-to-peer and social learning and mentoring programs, job shadowing, that that was almost as difficult as getting them to purchase the software. So it was a little bit of a challenge. We had a hard time, a little bit of stickiness there. But what's interesting was we had created a very easy to use learning management platform. So because we needed employees to be comfortable with the software, we made it so easy to use that we actually got approached by some healthcare organizations back in 2016. And they said, hey, we don't know anything about peer-to-peer social learning, but we understand that you've created a very easy to use learning management platform. Perhaps you could leverage it for our industry, for healthcare compliance. We're facing so many challenges with getting employees to move to the online space. We're facing so many challenges with getting them to complete their annual training. So many challenges with trying to get in their classroom. Maybe this is something that, that will work. So I went back to the team and said, hey, you think we could leverage this platform for online compliance training and healthcare compliance? You know, we looked at the market and we just saw a tremendous opportunity. And, you know, I've got an amazing team that was fully supportive of it. And we haven't looked back. So, you know, since 2017, we've been in healthcare compliance and really, really focused on helping organizations hire, develop, retain, and certify their employees. I've been in the compliance field since 2007. I've written 3,500 blogs. I've written 21 books on compliance. I've done 3,500 podcasts. You're the first person to use the phrase compliance as a service. This is a PG podcast, so I can't tell you the word I think of (laughs) how amazing that was. And this podcast is going to go up on one of my podcast series called Innovation and Compliance. And in doing this series, speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs, people like yourself, there's generally two kinds. One is the mad scientist locked in a room that comes up with a formula no one's else heard of. That's really a myth. The second is what I think I've seen you do, which is you look at the same thing I look at and a lot of other people looked at, but you came up with a different angle. So I have to have that long-winded introduction to start off with. What is compliance as a service and how does that concept really help you and resonate for you in the marketplace? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's something we're excited. We've been thinking about that term for a while now, and we really just started using it in the last year. And what we've come to learn in, in the compliance market is that, yes, the platform is important. The technology, the learning management platform is important. And accessibility is important. And whether people can use it is important. Content's important. The type of content you have, the relevancy of the content you have, the the interest level of the content that you have, it's it's all really important. But what our clients really want is they want all of their employees to be in compliance. I have an investment bank company client in New York City, and New York City rolled out a sexual harassment training requirement several years ago. And if you think about it fundamentally, they don't want me to sell them a learning management platform and anti-harassment content. They want me to make sure that all 500 of their employees are compliant. And what we realized was that not only could we do those first two pieces, which is provide the technology and provide the content, but we could actually help them with that second piece. How do you get 100% of your people 
to actually log in and sit through the training and pass it and sign the certificates. And we started doing that for our clients. And we said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about learning how to use an LMS. It's not your area of expertise. Don't worry about selecting content. That's not your area of expertise. Don't worry about figuring out how to connect with your payroll system so you can pull in all the employee data or whatever else you need to do. Don't worry about reaching out to the employee. We will do all that for you. Because we know that what's really important to you is 100% compliance. Everything else is just a way to get to that point. So that's what we do. So we no longer sell our technology and sell our content to our clients. We reverse that. We tell our clients, you give us your employees. We'll figure out a way to get your employee data into our system, into showed me. And then we will be responsible for ensuring that all of your employees are compliant. And they absolutely love that because they're not technical enough. Or they're not technologically savvy enough. You know, whenever I, I would do a demo and the inevitable question would always be, well, how much work is this going to be? Implementing new software and learning how to use it and learning how to leverage it. And it's compliance. So I'm nervous. What if I don't set it up right and 100 employees take a training and they don't take the quiz properly or all those other things? Our clients don't worry about that. They, we have an amazing account management team that just reassures them that, hey, I know exactly what you're... Let's discuss the content. Let's discuss what kind of training. Let's discuss the schedule. Let's discuss the messaging. We've got it from there. And because we're able to achieve those 90% plus completion rates. So we're able to get that you know, over 90% of the users to actually log in and do their training. Clients are thrilled. And we're happy with, uh, we actually have a 92% user satisfaction rate, which is really something we take a lot of pride in. And we only have that because we're doing it. I think if our clients were actually leveraging the technology themselves, I don't think they would have that user satisfaction rate. I think there would be a lot of struggles and a lot of friction there. Did you have trouble persuading clients early on to allow you to really take that role of compliance as a service? Or did they really embrace the concept, and then you were able to build upon that so that you have really a, a library or database user experiences that you can show new clients? I think what you asked was, what was the resistance from our clients towards this concept of compliance as a service? I think the resistance came from, number one, employees whose job it was to provide compliance trainings. I think they were somewhat resistant. You know, Maybe we're taking their job, which I don't think that was really the case. I think we're just shifting the responsibilities onto other things. So that was one. There was a little bit of threat. You know, hey, if you're going to do everything that I do, then what am I going to do? And then the second was, I think it took time until we, until they realized that we knew who we were dealing with. So I think sometimes if you come into certain industries and they just say, oh, you don't understand how challenging it's going to be with these employees. I don't think you understand how difficult it's going to be with these employees. And I think it took some time until we built up that level of confidence in our current clients and also our prospects that, no, we know exactly what we're dealing with. We know the challenges that many employees have with using technology. We know the fact that many of them have never done online training before, not familiar with using an LMS. We're comfortable with that. So yeah, a little bit of resistance early on, but much less right now. I think when they hear, you're going to do all the work for us, it's that last slide in our presentation. When, you know, What kind of work is this going to tell? And we say, none. We're going to do all the work. You know, We get that big smile on their face and like, oh, this is great. Many of the listeners to this podcast, the regulatory body that oversees them is not a healthcare or medical with the government. It's the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice has really mandated three components to compliance training. One, effectiveness. Two, targeted. And then three, documentation of one and two. So I was wondering if you could give some thoughts how you guys approach the question of if, if I'm a gatekeeper at a healthcare institution, whether it be a hospital or as far as an insurance company, perhaps, how do you uh, help a company provide targeted training that's effective and frankly engaging that people will actually take that training? That's a great question. 
and something that we take seriously because we see a direct correlation between engagement and completion numbers if the content is engaging. Too often, and, I, and I've been through the same experience myself for many years, the online content, and I love learning and development. And to this day, I still love to be in an actual physical classroom conducting training. I got that opportunity actually last week to do it for one of our clients. I, I ran a leadership session for them. In my mind, there is nothing more engaging than a classroom setting and then having that person, whether it's a compliance side, whether it's an attorney or an HR person or an, whoever it might be, or somebody teaching a leadership class. There's nothing more engaging than that. But that doesn't mean that if you move it to online training, it, it doesn't have to be engaging at all. So people are just saying, okay, it's just a PowerPoint with voiceover and click through it. I think it still has to be very engaging. We thrive to meet that. So whether we're conducting anti-harassment training or even you know things like conflict resolution or getting into healthcare compliance, OSHA, HIPAA, topics that you know people think about and they're like, oh, you know, when is this going to be over? We try to make sure that there's relevant examples. We try to make sure that we change it up. We're not, not saying the same thing every single year. We try to make sure that there's opportunities to interact with the training in, in ways that might be different and, and interesting. And like I said before, you know, because of that, because of that effort that we make on the content side, we do see a very strong correlation between, again, the more interesting content we have in completion rates. And sometimes when we see completion rates are not that high, we don't say, oh, it's users struggling with technology or, or some of these other issues. We may actually go back and say, you know what? This is actually a content issue. Maybe our content is just not engaging enough. Maybe our content is just not interesting enough. So I think it's important, one, like you said, to meet the requirements, that it be interactive and engaging and, and meet the requirements and needs. But I also think just from our perspective, it's a good best practice to have. Your website has some really good resources on it that I've drawn some questions for you from. And I would encourage our listeners to check it out because there's really some great stuff on your blogs. But just a couple of things that really intrigued me in looking through your website, which is number one, what are the five must-have technology platforms you need to successfully grow your team? One of the important things, especially today, in being a technology company is understanding that you're not the only software that this company is going to use. Whether you're talking to the sales team or the marketing team or the accounting team or the HR team, you're a piece of the puzzle. And almost as important as you feel your software is, your ability to seamlessly integrate and seamlessly work with those other pieces of technology as well are just as important. So when I think of ShowMe, for example, and we're involved with things like onboarding and orientation, so that's something we help our clients with. We're involved with required trainings, we're involved with voluntary training, things like that. So we look at, okay, so what else do we need to interact with? Do they have an applicant tracking system that we need to be able to interact with so that we're getting information about new hires? Do they have an HR system where there's updates about people's roles and maybe then the required training they need or whether they're still with the organization? Do we need to integrate with their payroll company? Because if they're getting paid for the training, then perhaps we need to send information back to the payroll system saying, hey, this person took training, they need to be paid. So at Showed Me, we're always staying on top of what are the other pieces out there? Because we need to take this very broad vision of what's going to help your HR department, what's going to help your compliance department be successful, and make sure that we're a piece of that. But again, we don't think we're the entire gamut. We're always having conversations with our clients. What else are you using? What else is out there? Who do you need to work well with, play nice in the sandbox with? Because we want to make sure it's a completely seamless experience. One of the uh, interesting things you guys also talked about was, and you've touched on this several times already in this podcast, which is new hires and setting up new hires for success. And I'm going to tie that to a question later about talent acquisition and, and retention. But what can an organization do 
And how can they partner with you to really help that component of their workforce, the new hires, to be set up for success? That's a great question and, and something we really do spend a lot of time on today, particularly in the industries that we focus on a lot, healthcare, where there's just shortages. Right? The reality is there's just not enough nurses, not enough LPNs, not enough therapists for a lot of the roles that are out there. And therefore, we feel like our clients, who most are aware of but may not be aware of, need to do two things exceptionally well. And this goes back to, I remember back in my, my days at DoubleClick in 2005, 2006, engineers, if you can remember that back then, were almost impossible to hire. People were first starting to understand the field and get into it, but there weren't nearly enough engineers. And we were competing with the big companies out there, the Amexes and Microsoft. And we came up with two strategies then that I talked to my clients a lot about today as well. The first one was a concept called hiring for a while. You can't have that mindset of, you should be lucky to come work here. That was the sort of old mindset was like, you should be lucky to get a job at our company. You got to flip it around. You have to be convincing people, ours is the company you want to work for. When you're doing your interview, sure, you want to test for skills and those things. You want to make sure you're getting across whether you care about your employees, how you care about your employees, examples of how you care about employees. Hiring for WOW, WOW the candidate that they want to come work for you as opposed to any of the other organizations they potentially could work for and maybe apply to. The second thing that's important is hiring for now. So yes, hiring for WOW, spend time on selling the organization, making sure they want to come here, but also realize that the window these days is very, very small. In some roles, it might be a couple of days. So because of those two things, you have to do both exceptionally well. Make sure that your onboarding experience is a very positive, frictionless experience that they can get through easily. And again, we help our clients with that because we'll do the paperwork remotely. We will do their training remotely. We'll do all those things through the Shodi platform remotely. And also we'll provide the support. So even if they get stuck on something, they can't quite do something, we'll make sure that you know they're able to continue on the way. So that's one thing that we're doing. And then it's that, so it's great experience at hiring for a while. And then hiring for now, we're encouraging our clients to put more of your onboarding and orientation online. So don't think they need to come into your office two, three, four times for different you know, applications and meetings and paperwork and all those things. You don't have that kind of time. Put all of it online and sure, have them come into the office, do your interview properly, be convinced that this is the right person that you want to have come working for your organization, but move the process along as quickly as possible. So we've been working a lot with our clients been a big part of what we've been focused on right now. And we feel like it's going pretty well. One of the most interesting things I heard sort of coming out of the pandemic was the following. Data has become much more important simply because we couldn't sit across from people and talk to them. We had to look at other information sources. And that's, of course, led to a discussion about, oh, we have to have data scientists or we have to have other different types of professionals. And that's led some... HR type folks to really tell me that in 2025, 2030 and beyond, the most important thing for a corporation will not be data, not even data analytics, but talent mm-hmm. and having people who can work with that, whether that's in the talent acquisition and talent retention. And you started to touch on that. But I really wanted to ask you, where do you see the training that you guys do and perhaps will do in the future in this now critical race and struggle? for talent acquisition and talent retention? It's always been interesting for me in the 17 years I've spent in HR, I've always been very focused on data. It's just been something where I felt like, you know, I've always been in challenging industries, high growth industries. And sure, you know, there's a lot of activities you can do, but if you don't have data to look back and say, what's working, what's not, what can we tweak, what can we improve? You know, there's not much you can do. We leverage our data for our clients. So we look at millions of hours of interactions, whether it's training, whether other things that clients are doing on the platform. 
And we deliver those back to our clients. So to your point, I think it's going to be hard for the, all those organizations to have people in their HR departments or the recruiting departments who are data experts. And fortunately, because they're leveraging our platform, they don't necessarily have to be. They just have to come back to us and say, hey, what does your general data show you? And then what does our data show you? So that's what we look at. We're looking at, for example, let's go back to recruiting and, and onboarding orientation. What's the average time from application to start? Application to start. What's the average time across all of our clients? And then we can go back to some of our clients and say, hey, by the way, not to give away any industry secrets or anything, but we're just giving you, you know, aggregate data over here. But it's, you know, the average time is, is seven days and you're at 11 days. You got to fix that. We got to sit down. We got to figure that out. We can look at things like satisfaction rates. We can look at things of where's, where was the breakdown? We're not telling our clients what should be involved in their onboarding orientation. We're simply taking it, putting it online. But sometimes we can come back to them and say, hey, you've made this too complicated. You've made this too difficult. You made this too challenging. Literally just had that with a client on Friday. And I just said, the way that the process was designed, you know, there's going to be a very high drop-off rate. It was too complicated. It was too difficult. I said, I think you can make it easier. And you're going to have a much higher conversion rate applicants to hires. So yeah, we love our data. We love re- leveraging it. And frankly, we get to some really interesting clients interesting discussions with our clients, I should say, around how to really improve their processes. And some of our clients are really getting a lot more into it. We have one client who we just sat down for a couple hours last week, and they're getting over a 1,000 applicants a month and really seeing exactly the journey of those 1,000. From 1,000, how does that get whittled down to the next level, next level, next level, next level? And how do they actually convert that into actual hires? They actually need to hire several hundred employees a month just to maintain their hiring levels. So yeah, I love that stuff. I'm very passionate about it. And again, we have the ability to leverage our data for our clients and also, like I said, get involved with whatever sources they have to see what we can do. One clear theme to me and listening to you in this podcast interview has been process. And that's near and dear to my heart. Number one, my wife's a process engineer, so I hear that a lot. But more importantly, the more I talk to compliance professionals, and these are largely legally trained professionals. So kind of a different academic focus is to try to convince them that compliance is a process and you can break it down into sub-processes and that sort of thing, but it needs to be seen as a process. And I hear you talking about the process and even compliance as a service as a process. Where do you maybe see that process going? Because as all of these factors continue to coalesce, talent, data, the ever-changing geopolitical situation that we find ourselves in, having that critical process is more important. So I was wondering if we be, you could maybe give a few thoughts on where you see all of the process that you and your team have engaged in and will engage in going into 2025 and perhaps even beyond. The world has become a much more complex place than when I started working in 2005. You know, if you think about just remote work as an example. We're a small company. We have 40 employees that were in eight different states because everyone's remote. And that that's a, a level of complexity that requires a process, right? If we hire somebody, that means we need to know, are we paying taxes in that state? Do we have an entity set up in that state? Do we know the legal requirements? Talk about compliance, right? What's the training that's required in the state of Massachusetts or Ohio or Missouri, wherever we have those employees? So I think moving forward, and, and, and again, one of the other things that you know really well, I'm sure, Tom, is that you know, when compliance gets implemented, it never gets taken away. So when a, when a state institutes a new compliance requirement, they're just adding on to the prior compliance requirements. So it's just going to get more complicated. And I think because of that process, and then what I think about is automation, is the way all organizations have to go, right? You can't leave things up to chance. You need to have systems in place, and that's why I talk about integrations and things like that. You need to have systems in place where your systems talk to each other. And if you hire an employee, 
or you're, you're starting to hire or trying to hire an employee in a certain state, it's talking to other systems and saying, hey, payroll, are you ready to go in Ohio? Hey, what kind of compliance training does the state of Ohio require? What kind of compliance training does the state of Ohio require for people who are working in the construction industry or the healthcare industry or the manufacturing industry? And you can't leave that up to your HR person. That's not fair. So all that thing, all those processes are things that have to be thought about and worked out. And if you can do that efficiently, then you don't have to worry. You can sleep at night. But if you don't have that, then it's a huge challenge. I'll give you one simple example. You know, we have a lot of clients in the state of New York, a very, very, very heavy multilingual state. So we provide support, training, content in five languages, English, Spanish, Russian, Mandarin, and a lot of Creole as well. Now, just think of that complexity. So when you send me an employee, I've got to know what's their role. So what kind, are they a nurse? Are they an LPN? Are they a nursing assistant? Are they a home healthcare aide? Maybe they work in the accounting department. So what is the role of that employee? What's their language preference? And therefore, what is that I need to send them? Not just the content, but what language of content do I need to send them? Because actually the state of New York prefers, particularly on anti-harassment and things like that, that you send the content, the training in the language of, in their native language, language of preference. So that's where process comes in. We've got to have a process in place where one, I'm getting the information from your system saying we have a new hire or we have somebody who's now working their second year or third year. And then a process in place that says, this is the required training for this role. And a process that says, this is the language you've got to send it in. And a process that says, we're going to check within a month to make sure it's all done. And do that across 10,000 employees or 15,000 employees or 20,000 employees. Or like some of our clients, it's 15, 20,000 employees across 30 states. So I don't know how everyone does it today, but I'll tell you something super interesting. McDonald's, and I haven't verified why, but McDonald's at the end of 2021 pushed down a lot of the compliance training and a lot of compliance requirements and required training to the franchise level. And instead of handing it at the corporate level, they're telling their franchises, you're responsible, you're in charge. Now, again, I'm not a legal expert. I don't know if it's from a liability standpoint or what it's from, but it could just as simply be from a process standpoint. They may have thrown their hands up their at corporate and said, we don't know how to keep track of 50 states and you know which states have anti-harassment, which ones don't, and what the OSHA, HIPAA, whatever it is, right? Not HIPAA, because they're, you know, but other things, you know, we can't do that. It's just too complicated. So we're pushing it down to the next level. I know it's a long answer to your question around process, but you know, we think about that a lot because we also think about automation and how we can just you know make sure that our clients can sleep soundly at night knowing that everything's taken care of. Avi, I have two criteria for determining how good a podcast is. One, how much fun did I have? And two, how much did I learn? And it was A1 on both. I appreciate um, that. Yeah, this has been great. Before we go, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted any more information on Showed Me, they wanted more information on yourself or even some of the topics we've touched on this podcast, what would be the best way for them to find out more? Yeah, certainly our website showed me is showd.me, showd.me. So certainly there, that's a great place to get a lot of information about what we do and certainly reach out to find out more information. Personally, I probably best is on LinkedIn. Try to keep active there. They've got, there's a great community, especially around HR and compliance and healthcare. So I'm pretty active there. People can find me, Avi Singer. LinkedIn. And yeah, I mean, like, it's funny. People always say, like, you get so passionate about like healthcare compliance and compliance. And I just look at it. It's just, it's fascinating. It really, Tom, maybe it's just you and I who find it interesting. But, you know, I find the challenge interesting. I think that's what it is. When you look at industries, and like I said, you know, compliance is just getting more complex and more complicated. And we're fortunate to be in that space as a technology company. So, strangely enough, you know, we find it exciting. We are fortunately now are at the end of our time, but I really enjoyed this and I hope we can continue this conversation. Sure. Thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. 
If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.